Hello and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today I am joined by Jenna. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, and Jenna is from another podcast. So, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, my podcast, Meet Me in the Woods. Um, it's all about survivalism and stuff like that, living in the woods. Uh, I talk a lot about mechanics sometimes if I feel like it. I talk about survivalism, what it's like just to run around barefoot and be a hillbilly. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, so you should definitely go check that out. And yeah, so today we're going to be talking about the Duplessis orphans in Canada, uh, which is like in the 1940s, 50s, and it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> um, so yeah, just the one if anyone listening, this will involve uh, like child abuse and stuff on a pretty big scale. Yeah, there was like 20,000 of them, wasn't it? Yeah, there were a lot. So, because I don't think I have a promo this week. So yeah, we'll cut to music. Yeah, and then we'll be back with a story. Uh, back in a few seconds. And we are back. So, we're going to be talking about the Duplessis orphans. Um, I guess we'll just get straight into it. Sounds good? Sounds good to me. Awesome. Right, right, right. The Duplessis orphans, there were um, a bunch of children in the 1940s, 1950s uh, in Quebec, Canada, who were basically falsely uh, labelled as mentally ill and and confined in, in psychiatric institutions. So needless to say, that's the overview. So you can tell it's going to get pretty messed up. <laughs> okay, so this is before the, the 1960s. So it happened before the Quiet Revolution, which is basically like a, a bunch of um, political and social cultural changes in Quebec. And one of, the, one of the main parts of this was the separation of government and church. So uh, basically the, the Roman Catholic Church still had a lot of uh, major pa- social power in, the, in Quebec at the time. So yeah, that's, that's just like a general feeling of how the area was, I guess. Like there, there were other things that happened, uh, like the creation of a welfare state and um, realignment of politics and stuff. But that's the right. general, that's the general overview of what happened there. Um, and now, before we get into the actual Duplessis orphans, I'm going to go into uh, Maurice Le Noblet Duplessis. Um, French names. I'm not going to. I'm never going to promise to pronounce these right. I'm just going to go with it. Uh, but yeah, he this guy was basically uh, 16th premier yeah, of Quebec, which is like the top, the top of the leading political party. And that was between 1936 and 1939. And then again, between 1944 and 1959. Basically, originally, uh, he gained power by uniting his conservative party with, with a breakaway group from the liberals called the Action Liberale Nationale. And for more context, basically, the Liberals basically had a long, long time lead in the politics at the time. I think it was like 30-something years. But yeah, he had questionable um, polit- political movements, to say, to say the least. Like his era of leading ended up becoming known as La Grande Noirceur, which translates to the Great Darkness, which is a great way to have your political career go. Nice. <laughs> So yeah, during his time, basically the liberals like they couldn't really challenge it because he was pr- like he was pretty uh, inbuilt and stuff at this point, and was powerful. 
but yeah, we'll go into his life a bit. Um, his early life was pretty mundane uh, for the most part, uh, but he was the son of a local politician called Nere Le Noble de Plessis. I'm gonna, so we're going to skip forward a bit to his political career, actually. He, he first won the seat as a Conservative Party of Quebec candidate in 1927 and was re-elected in 1931. But though his leader lost the election and his own seat. And he essentially won leadership for the party in 1933 later on. Now, a few years go on and the 1935 provincial election goes on, like comes around even. And he basically managed to put together a coalition with the uh, Action Liberale Nationale, who were, uh, yeah, basically these guys broke off from the main party. And though he lost the election, he managed to exploit a patronage scandal involving the the family of of the current premier to force his resignation, and then the next year came along and he and Duplessis and the Union National Party uh, won the August election, 1936 election solidly, which ended 39 years of liberal rule. He was um, defeated in the in the 39 election later on, which was a staff election called uh, in hopes of exploiting the issue of Canadian participation in the Second World War, um, because you know they they. Canada hadn't really done anything in the war yet. Um, big topic at the time. Basically, he came back again into power in 1944 and ended up holding power for the next 15 years until his death, winning another three elections. And basically, he became known as Le Chef, which translates to the boss or the chief. I thought it was going to say the cook. <laughs> I <laughs> That would have been great. That would have been great. <laughs> so, yeah, he ha- so he had five terms in office. And the last four of them were in a row. That's a long time. Yeah. It was a pretty well-earned um, nickname, I think. So, However, his policies were a bit questionable at times. Hence his brain being, it was known as uh, La Grande Noiseur, or the Great Darkness. Dark so, times, dark times. Yeah. Some bits were, um, pr- were pretty reasonable, like favouring rural areas over city development. And he introduced a lot of agricultural stuff during his first term, though he didn't invest much in social services and opposed military conscription and Canadian involvement in the Second World War. He also had a lot of support from the church, as I said earlier. Uh, right, and when church gets involved with government, that's where shit starts going down. Yeah, I mean, they hadn't separated the two yet. And they even had support of the church in, the, in its political campaigns. Their slogan was, Le ciel est bleu, l'enfer est rouge which means heaven is blue and hell is red, with blue being the conservatives and the and, hell, and red being liberals. Okay, so it was the opposite of the way it is here in the United States, where the red is conservatives and the uh, blue is Democrats. So it wasn't until the 1950s when the church broke with the uh, party, uh, as there were a bunch of labor strikes and the church supported unions while the party didn't. Now, this... Separately, it, this links into late the Duplessis orphans part because this is like a precursor to it. Okay. The church is basically responsible for social services in the province, which included orphanages. And the orphanages at the time can, had more than 20,000 illegitimate children, um, usually of unmarried uh, young women who were, or widowers, etc. And yeah, 20,000 were born within in Quebec between 1949 and 1956. And the proportion of illegitimate children in the in this province was lower than the rest of Canada, but, it, but Quebec also had the highest rate of institutionalization 
and had a lot fewer adoptions. And it wouldn't be uncommon for like unwed mothers to be shamed into giving their children to the church, um, as there were a lot, there was a lot of stigma with unmar- unmarried motherhood. And uh, it seems it seems like that was at the for the time that was like a worldwide um, belief that yeah. It was- to have kids when you're not married yeah it's super fucked up <laughs> and on top of that like abortion and and contraception work was um also illegal it was illegal or legal illegal uh illegal. like abortion and uh selling contraception oh. was uh were both criminal offenses oh, that's fucked up yeah um so yeah this resulted in a lot of children being abandoned on a death of a parent um or being removed from their homes um due to poverty etc right um, so they force them. They're like, you have to have these kids. And then it's yeah. like, yeah, but well, you can't afford to take care of them. So, mm-hmm. so a lot of these went to orphanages where they still faced a pretty difficult life because, because of their uh, status as orphans, they were exempt from compulsory schooling and the religious orders prioritized worker education for a lot of it. Like the sons of unwed mothers weren't allowed to legally inherit from their biological parents. Um, and they weren't allowed to become priests unless they had a special exemption. There was a lot of uh, deprivation, indoctrination, and guilt, etc. Because essentially there was a lot of characterization of um, orphans being the children of sin at the time, which is a quote from the article that I've taken that from. So, uh, orphans, you're pretty okay in my book. Um, I like orphans. Orphans uh, are the same as non-orphans. I know. They tend to be pretty cool people. Yeah. But yeah, and on top of this, um, these orphanages, uh, the church wasn't very equipped to care for them. Uh, so they had a lot of limited resources. And um, each nun was often responsible for watching at least 10 children who were under the age of two. Oh, fuck no. I know. I know. <laughs> it's hard enough to watch one under the age of two. <laughs> uh, honestly, <laughs> it, it's hard enough to watch one under the age of 23. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. I can't look after myself. <laughs> I'm, almost, I'm almost 30, and I can't hardly watch myself. I know. The Ebec Ombudsman, which I assume is some kind of person who does a job. <laughs> I didn't actually look up what job, that means. He gets paid for it. Yeah, yeah. he wrote in one of the reports um, after investigating this, so this much later, um, saying the majority of children spoke only in sounds until the age of four to six and were incapable of telling time, eating utensils, getting around, washing themselves, etc. In one trade school, up to 25% of the children between 9 and 16 were found to be bedwetters. So they basically treated them that's similar to, like, the feral children, if you look up... I like, guess so, children. but, um, yeah. Like, oh, no, there's, there's a bit of my notes later. Let me just skip down a second. Like the kids that are kept in basements and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, Sounds like they were isolated and unsocialized. Yeah, so I was going to add this later, but um, let me just go down a bit and put it here because it makes sense. Apparently, the religious orders, like I said, nuns were in charge of eight, of at least ten kids under two normally. But generally, they like in total, they'd have about fifty pre-adolescents to look after. So, uh, yeah, ten-year-olds and stuff. Pretty much fifty. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, especially uh, if they're um, like uns- uncivilized. Yeah. It's like, um, they're not, because it's not just schooling that they look after, like, nowadays you maybe get 20 to 30 in the class, I guess, right? Yeah, and they're, yeah. you know, they're they're educated nowadays and stuff, and that, so they know they're yeah. being a little shit. And that's just teaching, not looking after them? 
Yeah, yeah. So Looking like, after them, especially if they've never been taught, you know. Yeah, that's a lot. Especially because I'm assuming a lot of the nuns wouldn't have that much um, training in this. Mm. No, they're probably just like, okay, you're a nun. Here you go. You work here. Watch them. And they're like, oh, <laughs> fuck you. And then just slam the door and walk out and leave them all in a room. Yeah. Of course, this is wild speculation. They actually look up. <laughs> yeah. So don't quote me on that. <laughs> but yeah, so um, going back to a couple of his policies, uh, I just put that in there because it made sense at the time. Mm-hmm. He was also a very anti-communist and um, anti-trade union. as the, And he um, introduced the a lot of laws, uh, with the mo- most famous being the padlock law, which is meant to eliminate communist propaganda. Uh, and it basically made it illegal to use a house or allow any person to make use of it yeah, to propagate communism or Bolshevism by any means whatsoever, as well as um, printing, publishing, and distributing of any newspaper, periodical, pamphlet, circular, document, or writing propagand- propagating communism or Bolshevism. Now, do you notice anything about that? Um, sounds a little communist. Mm. it's really vague Um, it doesn't define communism or Bolshevism in any way really and it was a very used law it also denies the presumption of innocence and freedom of speech right right it makes it to where it's it's like a blanket term so that he says oh well I classify this as that so yeah um so yeah, there were a lot of concerns that a law would be used to arrest uh, activists from international trade unions and stuff. With yeah. two with two union leaders nearly being arrested, um, they weren't in the end though. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was applied frequently to a range of radical leftist groups. There were allegations that Duplessis um, used against political opponents, though these were general, these are generally seen seen as incorrect. And there were also reports that it was used against Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, but those are also incorrect. His government also, um, they had a lot of patronage and corruption, like lots, of, lots of bribes, etc. Um, and they used it to keep the liberal opposition weak. Mm-hmm. Um, like Duplessis, uh, he, once, he once said that a much-needed bridge at Trois-Rivières uh, would not be built should a, liv- should a liberal M&A be elected. And he kept his word while the opposition held, its, held the seat. And in, a rural, in rural districts, which always led to a liberal. The roads were kept unpaved, so making it difficult for commerce and medicine to be transported, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and residents decided in 1956 to vote for the Union National since, just because it was the only way to get new roads con- uh, built. Uh-huh. Uh, he was also accused of vote-fixing, and there were rumours from the time that said that the Union, that Union National groups would arrive in rural towns with whiskey, food, and appliances uh, in exchange for votes. So, yeah, pretty shady shit. <laughs> it sounds real shady. And uh, I'm now becoming aware of how often I say pretty shady shit on this show. Some shady shit, man. Some shady shit right there. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, one, of the more inter- one of the interesting things about him is that um, he made a lasting contribution to Quebec by replacing the flag with the fleur-de-lis. Uh, in 1948, uh, which I believe is the one that's still there today. I was gonna, I'm going to check that before I lie about it. Yeah, so he was, he's responsible for the for the official flag of Quebec. Now we can start getting into the. Uh, that was just like a bit background, just so we get a bit of. A, I like to give a bit of a um, overview of the time. Period. 
Oh yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Because time periods are weird, especially in the nineties. I mean, especially in nineteen hundreds. <laughs> yeah, nineteen hundreds, and then uh, pretty much up until like the nineteen sixties, where things all of a sudden start coming together. Yeah, and I honestly don't think anything's starting to get together. <laughs> like, have you considered the nineties? Everything about that is weird. <laughs> yeah. Literally, you know, I don't. I don't know much about the '90s for everywhere else, but I know around here it was kind of weird. But yeah. then again, when I think of the '90s, I'm thinking you know, like the grunge music. Yeah. And the, Have you ever watched any kind of television from that period? It's it's weird. <laughs> so, yeah, Duplessis orphans. So, um, one of his um, policies was putting the schools, orphanages, and hospitals in the hands of religious orders, noting that he, to quote, trusted them completely and signed an order in council which changed orphanages into hospitals to provide them with federal subsidies, which will come up very shortly. I know there are a few reasons that people were um, added, were given to uh, orphanages. Like I said, uh, wedlock, uh, etc., or unmarried parents, mm-hmm. or single mothers. Uh, there were, um, on top of this, orphans were generally considered a cheap supply and were paid a few cents a week uh, and there was urgent need for labour in hospitals. And finally, which is the main one is that um, the correct government received subsidies from the federal government for building hospitals, but barely anything for having orphanages. Yeah. So government contributions were um, only $1.25 a day for an orphan, but $2.75 a day for a psychiatric patient, which is over double. So does... They're going to, of course, they're going to tell them they're all crazy. Yeah. So basically, that's what they did. They were just like, it gave a lot of incentive to start diagnosing children with uh, with various mental illnesses while ignoring their actual mental state. And uh, children in a lot of orphanages were declared mentally deficient. In some cases, entire orphanages, such as the Mont Providence Orphanage in North Montreal. I wouldn't go called Herve Bertrand who, on March 18, 1955, a nun told him and, his, and the others in his third-grade class at Mont Providence Orphanage that they had all been declared mentally deficient. <laughs> all of them. Like, a lot of these would be, would be without examination. They'd just be, yep, that, that happened. Yeah. So, yeah, so basically, um, when, this, like, when this did happen, uh, basically, schooling stopped. The orphanages became, essentially became inmates in a mental institution. Uh, where, where they had a lot of uh, sexual, physical, and mental abuse by lay monitors and nuns. And children who complained about the conditions were sent to local reform schools. Yeah, it's like, you complain, so you're a bad kid. Yeah. However, one thing I noticed was, um, going back to Herb Bertrand from before, his, uh, like his worst experience was um, essentially him riding an elevator with a monitor who stopped it and sodomized him. He told the chaplain, and he was called a liar and sent to the Mont Saint Antoine Reform School, uh, which is also in Montreal. And he described it as a paradise. Yeah, to quote, he said, um, That was a paradise. At Providence, we were slaves. Quebec locked us up and threw away the key. So, when a reform school is paradise, I think that says a lot. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, they, like, there are allegations of. Um, a lot of the children were subjected to electroshock therapy, 
drug testing and other medical experiments uh, with, with some rumors of lobotomies as well. But yeah, in that time period, whenever you talk about any kind of mental institution, they're going to be doing experimental lobotomies. Yeah. And I'm not sure they actually confirmed lobotomies, but um, yeah, I think that there were a lot of reports about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of times the doctors and stuff that get in there really don't know what they're doing. So they're just like poking and prodding and stabbing. and. Oh, yeah. And like, not, like, like any, medicine, any medicine for modern is terrifying to me. And... Um, I, I'm sure in t- like in 20 years, people are going to be saying the same about nowadays. <laughs> yeah, but then again, back then, you know, like cocaine and heroin and stuff like that was legal. And so they'd just be like pumping them full of this. Stuff. Yeah, I know it was using medicine a lot of the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so um, I'm talking about, so basically when they, eventually when they were released, um, when they were legally mature, they were uneducated and pretty ill-equipped to cope with life as well. Um uh- there were actually seven religious orders that were that were said to have been part of this, who were the Sisters of Providence, the Sisters of Mercy, the Grey Nuns of Montreal, the Sisters of Charity of Quebec, the Little Franciscans of Mary, the Brothers of Notre Dame Le Miséricorde, and the Brothers of Charity. And basically, yeah, you look into it in the early 1960s, which investigated mental in- institutions after Duplessis' death. Uh, basically showed that one third of the yeah basically showed that about a third of the 22,000 patients didn't belong yeah that's a large portion yeah that's um maths is bad mm-hmm. like seven eight thousand i guess is that right like that i would have to let me let me do some math real quick and i can give you an exact number yeah between seven i was thinking between 700 7,000 7,500 ish let's just say 7,500 yeah about seven thousand five hundred. Yeah. So the but report basically it basically put an end to the concept of an asylum, and basically the institutions were closed. And years later, a lot of the children who survived them and had become adults started to speak about the treatment and the abuse they had. Uh, that would be hard because they like released them as adults, and if you grew up with that and that was all you'd ever known your whole life, and then you're out in society where that kind of stuff is wrong, mm-hmm. that would be really hard on somebody. Yeah. Like um, there was someone called Miss Gill, who was the who was the author of the Children of the Plessy, which was published in 1991 in Montreal. Uh, basically, account it's basically about the experiences of someone called Alice Quinton, who was confined and mistreated over 16 years at the Saint Julian Hospital. So um, yeah, basically in the book, teenage Alice um, basically recalls seeing a nun beat another teenager with a chain um, after after they'd complained about. A, about a beating the same nun had given to a five-year-old girl who later died. The second teenager was someone called Marion Kelly, um, who recalled in a uh, later interview not only being beaten, but also strapped to a bed frame and in, in a straitjacket for weeks at a time, uh, forced to take ice baths and force-fed. And she was the youngest of 12 children who were handed over to the nuns by uh, her mother in 1944. Uh, she filed a charge against the nun who allegedly beat her. I'm not sure what went that what not where I'm on that. Apparently, when uh, reached by telephone by uh, a reporter, uh, the sister in question was was 73 and replied with, "I don't know Marion Kelly," and hung up. It was pretty messed up. Like a lot of people were forced to work as domestics, farmhands, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people would a lot of the, a lot of the um, I see several commit suicide or were killed. 
So, yeah, and many would go on to have difficulties with personal and romantic relationships, addictions, unemployment, and financial hardships. Uh, and a lot of her had discrimination later in life as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Except, uh, and when is that one of them? They're essentially a demographic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that's a significant chunk of um, a population. Yeah, especially in the 60s. Yeah. So, like in, in a later study, uh, completed by one of the involved hospitals. Middle-aged Duplessis orphans reported more physical and mental impairments than a control group. Uh, the orphans were less likely to be married or have a healthy social life. 80% reported they suffered a traumatic experience between the ages of 7 to 18. Well, yeah, but um, when you... It's one of those things where when you grow up and you're told that you're mentally ill and this and that, you're eventually going to develop mental illness because of the trauma and abuse and everything like that. Yeah. So well, they created a problem by doing that. Mm. Over 50% said they'd undergone that they'd had uh, physical, mental, or sexual abuse, and 78% uh, reported difficulty functioning socially or emotionally in later life. But there were a couple of examples I had here, like uh, there was Gil uh, Bourbonnaire. Who ended up living on? Who lived on tranquilizers and could not read and write at the age of fifty-one? Uh, Dennis Lecoq, at fifty-two, had uh, testicular problems from early beatings and had ta- and was on antidepressants for at least thirty-five years. Mm-hmm. And these two were actually with Herve um, Bertrand, that I mentioned earlier, at Mont Providence, but they didn't get away for much later. Like Bernard Pierce, who was the doctor who signed the document that basically certified mental deficiencies at Mont Providence uh, Orphanage um, would still practiced in the 90s um, part-time and in a comment to Photo Police which was a Montreal crime tabloid he described the forms he signed as bureaucracy and paperwork and acknowledged that he could not actually remember examining any students and when asked um, why he signed it he replied I did it because the nuns asked me to yeah and if it was like a like like I said, the church had a lot of pull at this time. Yeah, as I was about to say, if the church wanted it to happen, it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, by the 90s, there were still about 3,000 survivors. Um, and basically a large group formed together to start a campaign, uh, calling themselves the Duplessy Orphans. And basically it was, they went and they were seeking $1.2 billion. In addition to the government and church, the College of Physicians of Quebec uh, basically came under fire as well. Uh, after some orphans found copies of their medical records had been falsified, with, with them being labelled mentally deficient. Yeah. So there was that class action lawsuit seeking one or two billion, and additionally, there were the orphans had already uh, filed 120 criminal complaints against members of religious orders and personnel um, and supposedly involved. Yeah. Um, so they were stonewalled at first by the government. Um, but they started gaining a lot of publicity in March 1999. So the Parti Quebecois uh, government uh, basically made a, a token offer of approximately $15,000 uh, as full compensation to each of the victims. The offer was rejected and the government was criticised by the public and um, the provincial ombudsman, Daniel Jacoby, who basically said that the government had basically handled it awfully and trivialized the abuse of victims. So uh, the government still refused to hold an inquiry, though. And in 2001, the claimants eventually received an increased offer uh, for a flat payment of 10000 per person, 
a drug mm-hmm. dollars person, plus an additional 1,000 for each wrongful year to a mental institution. Yeah. Uh, which amounted to about 1,500 per orphan. Uh, wait, 15,000 per orphan. Though at this point, it was limited to each of the surviving 1,100 orphans um, that the government had labeled as mentally deficient, but it didn't include compensation for victims of sexual or, or other abuse. Yeah, the offer was accepted for those eligible while the rest didn't get anything recently. And uh, yeah, it was taken on by a show of hands in a closed door session. There, yeah, the results were the results were contested by a group believing that the victims should have gotten more. Uh, honestly, I agree. They should have gotten more. Uh, many believe that just wasn't really done. Yeah. And um, yeah, the Quebec government declined to prosecute the criminal cases. Opponents basically pointed out that three of the bureaucrats running the compensation program were being paid over $1,000 per day of work. So the orphans basically got the same amount for an entire year of their childhood and, and fines. Yeah. The Catholic Church uh, publicly announced that they, that they played no responsibility in the orphan situation and refused to apologize. With the representative for the seven orders, Sister Giselle uh, Fortier, uh, calling the, uh, the allegations upsetting, but meant but very much sensationalized and needs to be put into context mm-hmm. uh, with uh, the Archbishop of Montreal, uh, Cardinal Jean-Claude Tocot, basically asserting that religious orders, to quote, deserve our respect and have a right to their good name, which is a really questionable thing to say, like in this situation. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of the Duplessis orphans were offended because of this. With uh, one of the orphans called Martin Lecour, uh, basically saying that it's important to me that uh, the church, the priests, uh, they, they, they recognize that they were responsible for the sexual abuse and the aggression. It's not for the government yeah. to set up peace. It's an insult and the biggest proof of the, that the government is an accomplice of the church. However, Dominic Jean, a professor of Quebec history at Charlton University in Ottawa, uh, said that there had been a lot of scapegoating of the church, which found sad because, to quote, the whole of Quebec society was to blame. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there we go. That, um, and the, t- the task of caring for dependent children had just been thrown at religious orders and the people on the outside just closed their eyes to what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, nuns were in charge of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also acknowledged that the church had a responsibility to maintain ethical standards and did not. Yeah, it was fucked up how, they, I mean, there was absolutely no ethical standards involved with that. Mm-hmm. Like in 1999, there were two researchers called Leo Paul um, Lozon and Martin and Martin Poirier, um, who basically gave a report arguing that arguing that the Quebec government and the Roman Catholic Church made a lot of profits after this. Yeah, like they made a conservative estimate that the religious groups received about seventy million dollars in subsidies in nineteen ninety nine term uh, dollar terms. Uh, yeah, that's because they were sending them all to the psychiatric ward mm-hmm. instead of orphanage. While the government saved $37 million by having one of its orphanages re- redesignated from a, from an educational institution to a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. Though a representative of a religious order involved accused the authors of making false... Of making false uh, Daniel Jacobi, who I mentioned earlier, his statement on, on the... Um, to press these orphans uh, and their campaign uh, was each of the parties involved passes responsibility for the events onto others or to the values of the period. Moreover, neither media coverage nor petitions, criminal complaints, 
legal proceedings or appeals to the National Assembly or different departments have until now allowed for the for reconciliating the different points of view or identifying specific responsibilities. It's very difficult to go back in time and after such a long time specifically identify those responsible. Furthermore, the Superior Court, who had to rule on authorization to file a class action, has itself been led to believe that the that legal recourse is not the appropriate avenue. Due to the limits of the judiciary system, uh, the infants, the duplicity, now consider themselves the victim of a system of justice, uh, which they now feel is hostile or inaccessible, since it does not allow them to reveal or prove the injustice they allege. In fact, the government, medical profession, or religious authorities have assumed responsibilities in such a way, in practice, the unfunded employee continue to suffer the wrongdoings for which they have never been compensated. The social context at the time cannot justify that persons following medical certificates issued for financial rather than medical reasons uh, have been confined in asylums, neither can it justify certain abuses. Today's society has the obligation to officially acknowledge the wrongdoings caused to its citizens. And just to round off, in 2004, members of the Duplessis orphans also asked the Quebec government to unearth an abandoned cemetery in the east end of Montreal, which they believed held the remains of orphans who may have been subject of medical experiments. According to testimony by, in, by individuals who were at sit the saint jean de in Saint Asylum, the orphans were uh, routinely experimented on and many died. Yeah, so the group uh, basically wants the government to exhume bodies so that autopsies can be formed. And um, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. Like, Sounds like about everything. A lot of the political stuff and the stuff about the guy I didn't really know a whole lot about. Uh, but uh, I had my Wikipedia open to the uh, actual treatment and stuff of the orphans. I mean, that's fun. I, I literally asked you on last night, I think. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it works. But yeah, do you have any other comments on it? Or um, it's fucked up. Treat your orphans good. I think that's a good point to cut it and go to music and get an outro. Yeah. <laughs> and we are back. So, um, just a quick outro. Jenna, do you want to uh, plug anything, give any shout-outs, etc., or mention anything? Yeah, uh, you can find me, Meet Me in the Woods podcast. Uh, you can get a hold of me at the Facebook group, Meet Me in the Woods podcast group, or Meet Me in the Woods podcast at gmail.com. Twitter, at Meet Me in the Woods. I'll teach you some stuff about the woods. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, cool. So uh, my shout-outs this week going to go to Ignorance Was Bliss podcast of Myth and Mercy and Nothing Rise and Murder. Because those are the first three I saw. Yeah, Also, they're awesome. You should go listen. Uh, yeah, we've got a couple of things coming up this week. Uh, like the, next, the day after this launches, I think we'll have a bonus episode uh, where I'll get to do some story reading, uh, which essentially like a part one of the patreon but but i didn't want to have it behind a paywall because it's essentially just a story <laughs> so i'm gonna have that as a bonus episode instead the first patreon episode will will release on thursday which is also my birthday so you guys should totally go uh please give me money <laughs> um and yeah so 
so yeah, social media. We have Facebook at facebook.com slash Blood and Rocks. We have Twitter at, at the Bloody Rocks, Instagram at the Bloody Rocks, and um, email at botrpodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's everything. So thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and have a great week. Bye. We love you.